Good afternoon. It's Thursday, the 7th of July, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today is myself, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by Debbie Evans. And of course, we're smiling because uh, it's been a very special day today, as uh, many people will already know. Uh, but our preparation for the news was uh, rudely or perhaps pleasantly interrupted uh, let's just uh, play this first little clip, and this is uh, what caught our attention as we were bringing UK Column News together for you today. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. It, thank you, thank you. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. And the timetable will be announced next week. And I've today appointed a cabinet to serve, as I will, until a new leader is in place. So I want to say to the millions of people who voted for us in 2019, many of them voting Conservative for the first time, thank you for that incredible mandate. Since 1987, the biggest share of the vote since 1979. And the reason I have fought so hard in the last few days to continue to deliver that mandate in person was not just because I wanted to do so, but because I felt it was my job, my duty, my obligation to you to continue to do what we promised in 2019. And of course, I'm immensely proud of the achievements of this government, from getting Brexit done to settling our relations uh, with the continent for over half a century, uh, reclaiming the power for this country to make its own law, and in the last few months, leading the West in standing up to Putin's aggression in Ukraine. Well, it appears that there were a few gremlins in with uh, Boris Johnson today as uh, he made his uh, departure speech. Uh, I have some thoughts. Debbie, what do you think? I think he, he looked quite happy, don't you think? To be, uh, I think he was quite relieved, maybe, to be stepping down. But I'm um, certainly thinking that he was forced to go. And maybe yesterday he was saying that he was so buoyant, he wasn't going to go. And everybody around him was saying he's not going to go. So obviously things have changed. But he does look relieved, I have to say. He looks a, a particularly happy chappy. And of course, somebody will have an excellent job lined up for him as a former Prime Minister of UK. So I'm sure he'll be on to the uh, billions uh, as Tony Blair, for example, but the gravy train is uh, very well established for former um, top politicians in UK. Well, who will we get? Will we get uh, somebody better than Boris Johnson? Will there be any change? Presumably, if that person is selected out of the Conservative Party, uh, effectively, there's just going to be more of the same. But the BBC decided that uh, it would have a little look at who, who might replace uh, Boris Johnson. So let's uh, bring in the first candidate on screen. And it's our very own Rishi Sunak. Uh, we've put in some tags to help uh, our viewers and listeners identify these people. So uh, we've given him money bags. And of course, this man 
excuse me, married into an Indian billionaire family. Um, is he in the real world? He lives in an extremely large house. Money is clearly not a problem to him. Um, has he got the best interests of UK at heart or has he got his family's money preservation at heart or has he has he got another country in his heart? Of course, we don't know. And uh, I think this is the big problem now that we're getting politicians. We actually have no idea where their real allegiance lies. But uh, if you want a man with money, look no further than uh, Rishi Sunak. Uh, well, here's another candidate, Michael Gove. He's a bit of a dark horse, uh, the grey man, but also, of course, a strongly declared Zionist. And so I think we can ask the same question. Has he got the UK deep in his heart or is the priority Israel and the Zionist movement? Which will come first? Because no man can have two masters. So I would be highly suspicious of Michael Gove coming into Run UK because I think his uh, strings will be pulled very closely by the Zionist movement itself. Uh, we've got uh, Sajid Javid. I was lost for words, so we just uh, put in a question mark there. Any thoughts on this man, Debbie? Oh, any thoughts on, well, all of them, actually. Um, let's just go back very quickly to Rishi and Michael Gove, because I believe we need to be keeping an eye on Dominic Cummings here, because I think Rishi, um, Dominic Cummings and, and Rishi are team Rishi Sunak. And I think Gove owes Dominic Cummings quite a few favours. So I think we could see Gove and Rishi teaming up a little bit there with Dominic Cummings in the middle. As for Sajid Javid, well, no, I haven't got anything to say. Not anything good. So maybe I should hold my tongue. <laughs> OK, well, let's uh, move on in the list then. Uh, we've got a sort of outsider, really, uh, Tom Tugendhat. Um, he was a, a strong EU Remainer. He's got a bit of a military background, I believe, but doesn't appear to be a sparkling jewel in the uh, the box of candidates. Well, what's interesting about Tom Tugendhat, Brian, is that he's a member of Bilderberg. Well, that'll probably help a little bit. So I thought that's an interesting little thing to keep an eye on, isn't it? Bilderberg. OK, we'll watch him. Who else have we got? Well, your very own Jeremy Hunt, and I've just labelled him as global health security champion because it seems everything around this man is to do supposedly with health. But when we follow it through, it looks more like clamping down on freedoms and free speech in, in the security role. Yes, surveillance, surveillance, surveillance all the way with Jeremy Hunt. And of course, we mustn't forget that um, his wife is Chinese, although he... Mr. Forgot. For Japanese. <laughs> he yes. forgot and thought that she was Japanese. Um, and Jeremy Hunt would, in my opinion, be a complete and utter disaster. Um, and I'm terrified. But he's actually apparently first out of the traps. So he's been having his agenda running for a little while now. So everyone else has got to do catch up. OK, well, let's bring in this one. Um, Nadim Zahawi. I've labelled him here as a poor migrant, but we're going to do a little bit of a focus on him in, in just a few moments. Uh, so I find this a very, very interesting man. And I know you've got some comments, but we'll save those till till we get on to him in a little bit more detail. Uh, well, here she is, Liz Trust, warmonger. What else could we describe her as? Uh, can we imagine the next uh, Liz Truss as the next prime minister of, of UK? Presumably, she'll mobilise the country straight away. She will put the whole of our uh, 
of domestic budget into weapons for Ukraine. Um, I, I could think of a number of things that she would do. Penny Mordant is in here somewhere. I've called her a sailor magician because, of course, she's Reserve Royal Navy. But also she's credited, apparently, with being able to pull rabbits out of hats in order to solve political problems. So she's a bit of a dark magician. Uh, but how strong a candidate she really is, I don't know. Uh, but this appears to be the big man, Ben Wallace, uh, Minister for War, but also, of course, Zelensky's mate. So uh, that would be the big, uh, the big thing for him, wouldn't it? That he can come in and keep that war going for as long as possible uh, for the advantage of every arms manufacturer in the world, but also for NATO and the EU. Isn't he the gentleman that told um, on, on live call to uh, somebody that was spook, spoofing him, he said the UK had run out of weapons and that we couldn't actually replace them as quickly as we were giving them to Ukraine. Is, is that the same man, Brian? It, it is the same man, but we have managed to find even more weapons which have been given to Ukraine. Uh, the only problem is those British weapons, along with US German and French weapons are being destroyed by the Russians as we speak. Well, that's the list of candidates. My take on it is that if we have a prime minister who is a conservative party, uh, the face will change, but the political agenda won't change uh, because it will be another person controlled from the uh, geopolitical uh, world state, uh, the very people that control all the money. Well, we said we'd do it. Here he is, uh, BBC actually asking the key question, who is Nadim Zahawi? Um, apparently, he's just a poor Iraqi refugee who's, who, who has become chancellor. Um, OK, we, we can't change our individual looks, but I look at him here and I just sense bruiser. Mm. I, I don't get any any warm feelings off this man. I look at him and I think bruiser. And I think he normally has some form of bruiser in attendance with him. Uh, he does. Yeah. Yes. Apparently, um, I've heard very tragically from someone that's vaccine injured, um, who Nadim Zahawi was her constituency MP. So she went to see him and apparently he has a security guard. Uh, covered in tattoos. Not that I've got anything against tattoos or piercings. It just may appear to be um, a little bit overwhelming when you see somebody like that as a security guard for a politician. And I believe he told her, even though she was vaccine injured, um, he told her to get the next jab and was pretty much laughed out of his surgery. So Nadim Zahawi, I mean, has he played this card chancellor to suddenly be up there ready for the leadership battle is that well, what he's doing a lot of people debbie saying that uh, this this man's career has suddenly taken off but yeah. if we can bring that slide back on screen please i just wanted to add this bit the bbc is at least asking a good question just who is this man and when you read their article you do get some clues so he says about himself that he must be one of the luckiest human beings on earth I would have been drafted into the Iraqi army, had to go to the front line and probably die. That's what that's what he said. But as fate would have it, instead, he and his parents were forced to flee Iraq and he grew up in Britain and he was educated at private and comprehensive schools. Now, I'm going to say something which uh, some people may find a bit tough, but of course, 
what the family has done is abandoned Iraq. He didn't want to uh, get involved in fighting for Iraq. So he's come to a country which can still possibly provide some um, residue of law and order and democracy because other people in this country didn't run away during two world wars. They actually fought for their country. So I wonder what sort of man uh, Mr. Zahawi is. Is he a man of substance when the chips are tough? He's going to be there on the ground supporting his country and his community. Or is he a man who, when the chips get tough, he's got the money to run away to a different country? Uh, if anybody finds that a bit tough, well, I'm going to say that's what I think. So the story being put across is that he's just a poor migrant. But the BBC reveals that his grandfather was the governor of the Central Bank of Iraq. And now he's just somehow got from being a migrant to come to the safety of UK, to go all the way through the system, to become Chancellor of the Exchequer. That's, that's an incredible story, isn't it? It is an incredible story. And, you know, I noticed something last night because I know that we were talking about this uh, previously. And last night on Peston... Suala Braverman said exactly the same. I'm an immigrant. I've come from a poor family. I feel it's my duty to be here to serve the country. And then announced that she was always also going to run for leader as well. So it seems to be a common theme in that we're getting politicians who have got histories like this, but are using it to better themselves, further and, themselves. And sell a particular yeah. image to people, whether it's uh, the wider public or their, constituent, yeah. their constituents. Uh, well, let's bring in uh, this one. He, he also made it big in Teletubbies. Um, so he started to make money through merchandising uh, Teletubbies. So that ex wasn't exactly helping the education of uh, children in UK, as far as I'm concerned. Apparently, allegedly, he's one of the richest politicians in the House of Commons. And I've added the comment, trust me, I'm going far because this is what is being reported in the press at the moment. So there's some of the uh, candidates or the key candidates that the uh, media are picking up on at the moment. Um, are we going to get a better prime minister for UK? My feeling is no. And this is uh, inevitable because we're not getting rid of the party political system and judging MPs and thus prime ministers on their personal, uh, personal and professional merits. Well, let's move across to the subject of Ukraine. And uh, as Patrick Henningsen mentioned, uh, um, I've lost track of my days now. Where are yesterday. we? Yesterday. Thank you. Um, as Patrick Hen Henningsen mentioned, uh, the press, not only in UK, but worldwide, are in big trouble now because it's it's very, very clear that the reporting on Ukraine has been so utterly biased against anything that the Russians have been doing on the battlefront that now it is obvious that the Russian uh, military machine is controlling the whole battlefield in, in Ukraine. Uh, they really don't know what to say. So, Here's the Guardian with a grudging Putin's forces have made genuine headway after capturing Lizzie Chance. Um, but if you get into the article, they try and get back on the old subject that, well, it has taken them a long time and they're short of ammunition and their, their advanced weapon systems like the hypersonic rockets are not working properly. 
But of course, the map that was embedded in that particular article is now demonstrating the uh, sheer scale of the terrain that the Russians have taken. And they are moving forward and will continue to move forward. But um, what do the what does the Guardian want to promote? Well, this was an astonishing little find in their uh, so-called Guardian live reporting on Ukraine. Uh, it says a crowdfunded Turkish-made military drone is expected to be delivered immediately from Lithuania, the country's defence minister uh, said. Uh, the uh, Vanagas, which apparently means hawk in Lithuanian, along with ammunition, arrived in the Baltic country on Monday. Uh, very soon it will be delivered to Ukraine. And this is the uh, Guardian comment on it. The crowdfunding campaign raised nearly five million for the Barakta TB2 drone over three days before the Turkish manufacturer announced it would donate the drone free of charge. Uh, a, a portion of the crowdfund, crowdfunded funds were used to equip the drone with munitions, while the rest went towards humanitarian aid. So the nub of this is that the Guardian is cheering on. We've gone into the realms of crowdfunding for weapons. Debbie, I find this really obscene, really horrible, but the Guardian is apparently all for it. And then this is the reality on the battlefield. The drone is likely to last days before it's shot down because the Russians are shooting down drones with increasing ease due to the uh, sophistication of the Russian um, air defence missile system. So 2022, get together with your friends, buy some weapons, send them to Ukraine to kill some Ukrainians or Russians. It's pretty bad, isn't it? But it doesn't get any worse, does it? It really doesn't. I don't think so. And um, we'll just add this one in. Uh, I've chosen this lady, but there's several of these present uh, uh, presenters. Uh, this particular lady was giving commentary on the war in Ukraine. She's standing in front of the usual pink map of the type that you've just seen on screen from The Guardian. And uh, she's giving a dialogue of what's happening on the battlefield. What I find so fascinating is that if you have a little look at her, um, who is she? Dr. Ashbourne Wolsey. Uh, she's worked in defence and security industries for 20 years. Director of the thriving consultancy firm Ashbourne Strategic Consulting Limiting, which apparently has clients in the UK, US, New Zealand and Europe. She's on the British government board, which oversees defence exports. Uh, Associate Fellow of the Royal United Services Institute and the uh, Fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society. And um, she graduated from St Andrews University, Scotland, uh, with a master's degree and a PhD. Um, I believe those are, his are history based. Uh, I'm, I'm being careful on this because I did go to look at this in some detail. As far as I can see, her specialist and PhD is in history. But come to the next sentence. Dr. Ashbourne Wolsey is married to Vice Admiral retired Sir Robert Wolsey, previously the UK's Defence Acquisition Chief and Controller of the Navy, a leading expert in nuclear engineering in the UK and a former Director of Nuclear Operations British Energy. Rob is delighted that his wife has followed him into the nuclear sector. Uh, to which I say, Debbie, just how is this possible that somebody comes from this sort of background is then brought in front of the UK public, worldwide public, in fact, to be commenting on a war 
um, when she doesn't appear to have any credentials, but she can she can do anything because um, she slipped across into the nuclear sector. Yeah, and again, you know, she's not the only person, is she? We're seeing this systemically now, people without any qualifications. I mean, what qualifications has Nadim Zahawi got to be Chancellor of the Exchequer? These people have got no experience, no training, no qualifications in any of the areas that they seem to be now expert in. And the media companies themselves are prepared to take these people yeah. and put them in front of the, the, the audience as if they have full credibility yes. to comment on what's happening. I'll just, just say to our viewers and listeners, think about this. Think about the people who are presenting in front of you. You can apply the same logic to the UK column, check us out, but we're checking out some of the people that Sky is using here in order to sell a particular narrative to the public. Now, I'm going to say that uh, Boris Johnson um, caused some trouble for us today because, of course, we had certain things set up for the news. But this segment I decided to keep because I think it still keeps us focused on the problems we've got in the political system in the UK. And this is going back, um, well, a day or so ago. The headline was Chris Mason. What is Boris Johnson's goal on Ukraine? And it was an interesting article because, of course, um, the, the uh, political editor for the BBC there was himself confused as to what Boris's ultimate policy in Ukraine was. So uh, an interesting headline. And uh, the UK column for some time now has been highlighting this fact that Boris was changed from Boris the buffoon to an almost Churchill replica um, standing firm on the Ukraine war. Uh, another headline here, Chris Mason again, start language as NATO assesses threat uh, from Russia. And there's um, Boris looking very steely uh, in the in the meeting. And uh, yep, he, he's Churchill, isn't he? Uh, defence spending, will the government break its promise? And he's there with the flag. So we're going to brand him Churchill. And uh, we found this little article from researching the relationship between the UK and Ukraine. Um, so here's the headline. Let's expand it a bit for you. Ukraine and the EU stronger together. Minister for Europe David Liddington on issues and opportunities in EU-Ukraine relations in an op-ed for Den paper. And this was published on the 17th September 2013. So we're going back a bit here, but um, let's just pay attention to a little bit of the text uh, from, uh, from what David Liddington said. Closer European integration opens up a vast array of new opportunities for Ukraine and its people. At the heart of these opportunities and the exciting agenda to transform Ukraine, its economy and institutions to build a modern and prosperous European state, Ukraine has a great opportunity to be a partner of increasing influence and value. Change will not happen overnight, but with commitment and determination, it will come. That will be good for Europe and Britain. Most importantly, it will be good for Ukraine. So interesting to see how, whatever we are, nine years later, uh, Ukraine lay, uh, lays in ruins, uh, trying to fight a war which it will not win. Um, but the agenda was for this massive change within Ukraine. Now, um, if we can just pop that one back, I wanted to highlight 
that uh, they emphasize that this article was published in Den newspaper. And if you click on this active link, it takes you through to this particular Ukrainian, um, uh, I call it a newspaper or periodical. And um, I clicked, this is what came up on screen. And I was absolutely fascinated to see Boris Johnson there next to Churchill. Now, this is a much more recent article, so it's not directly linked to the article I'd previously shown you, but I'm showing how I came across this article. And look at the headline under the picture of Boris next to Churchill. Operation Unthinkable continues or the world wars always return. And I was stunned when I saw that because of what Operation Unthinkable was. And we can give you a bit of it here. It relates to the end of the uh, Second World War. This is the text of the article written by a lady called Anna uh, Danilchuk. Uh, but let's uh, give you a little bit of what she said. A war in which one totalitarian regime fell and another survived cannot be called victorious. Churchill saw the pain of the nations disappearing under the shadow of the great communist wall, swallowed into its darkness for decades. Millions of Ukraine victims of World War II were followed by millions of Ukrainian victims of the Soviet regime. And now our battle continues. Anticipating this on May the 24th, 1945, Churchill asked British military planners to look into what he called Operation Unthinkable. Boris Johnson quotes the historian David Reynolds about the essence of this operation. British and American forces would actually turn on the Russians Remember, this is right at the end of the Second World War. Hundreds of millions of people dead. British and American forces would actually turn on the Russians and push them back from Eastern Europe, not without the help of, quote, denazified German troops. This too bold idea was not supported by the war weary states and the British accused Churchill of sowing panic and did not support him in the next elections. But he was right as always. I find this very, very dangerous material because we, we've got somebody here publishing in Ukraine. They want a full war against the Russians. The operation he called unthinkable, understanding its political, economic, military and psychological complexity is currently underway in Ukraine and our response surprises the world. So this is a newspaper that has been linked to by the British government, but it covers writers who think that the way ahead would be to actually follow through the operation. I'll just expand this on screen so that you can freeze it and read this for yourself. And here's the second paragraph um, where, the, where the lady is saying that basically this is an inevitable war, a complete war against the Russians. So I'm thinking to myself, uh, Debbie, um, do people in UK really understand uh, the politicians and influencers in Ukraine uh, that are producing this sort of material and want this sort of agenda? No, I don't think they do. I don't think the British public understand pretty much anything about what's going on in Ukraine uh, with Russia at the moment. I think the majority of people, sadly, are just still believing the BBC propaganda and mainstream media. And, and the propaganda, of course, coming out from our own parliament. Yeah. And let's remember that Boris Johnson has performed largely as a buffoon. 
the country is now reduced to a state of strikes. The NHS has gone. The military is in a massive state of decline. The economy is wrecked. We're literally at war with Russia. Um, who are we going to get? Well, let's just look at this film clip, very short, uh, where somebody is talking about standards in political life in the House of Lords. OK, we seem to have a problem with that video. That's, uh, that is a pity because uh, uh, it's a short clip from The Independent where Lord True is announcing to the House of Lords uh, what problems, uh, sorry, what uh, organisation is in place to ensure high standards in political public life. And uh, the Lords simply start laughing at him because, of course, they realise that what he's trying to defend and the performance and behaviour of the government utterly indefensible. So that's a shame. But if you have a look for the independent and uh, actually you could just uh, um, pop this one up on screen, if you would, Stephanie, thank you. Uh, this is what it's about. It's Lord True talking about the pincher episode. Uh, but as you can see, the lady just behind him is smiling. And in fact, all around him is laughter. And that is actually Baroness Evans uh, there, who's the leader of the House of Lords and also in um, was in Boris Johnson's cabinet, just as uh, she was laughing as well. Yeah, I, I've watched this little clip twice and I'm thinking to myself, should they actually be laughing? I know why they're laughing, because the whole thing is so pitiful. But in fact, the matter should not be a laughing no. matter. It should be it should be them holding these people to a, account and bringing the standards back up. But we'll leave that there. Now, we're going to say, as always, a big thank you to our uh, UK Column supporters. If you're not already a signed up supporter, a member of UK Column, we're going to say, please join us. And uh, of course, you get all the benefits of the community, uh, which is there listed on screen. Uh, you can also support us by delving into the shop. Um, we're delighted to say that uh, uh, the shop items are selling extremely well. So if you haven't bought something and you've got your eye on it, you better get in there. And as always, we want the material shared. So uh, we're putting it out on as many platforms as we can. We can't put it out on YouTube, of course, because we've been banned. But if you see material that you want to share, please share it, uh, because that's uh, why we're doing what we do. Now, I'd just like to say a big thank you to um, uh, Gary, because he's a gentleman who responded when I asked whether any of our viewers and listeners who could help us with details about the so-called charity Presidium uh, that was um, providing uh, humanitarian assistance in Ukraine. We mentioned this a few days ago and were very surprised to find this interesting little com company commenting on the British mercenaries who were now in prison uh, and, uh, and had been caught. Uh, but also they appeared to be working with other companies behind the scenes that you could very easily link back into uh, NATO, for example. So we're still very interested in this company. And uh, some of the information that's come up here is very pertinent because it's the company house records. And we can see that this strange little um, community interest company 
only started in November 2021. So it starts just before, effectively, a few months before the war in Ukraine. Seems very convenient. And then it gets involved and it's very close to some very, some would say, dirty business going on with mercenaries. But if anybody else can help, that would be really excellent. So, Debbie, let's move on to uh, a subject which you're not going to drop. And uh, yeah. I'm delighted that you're not. And it's the subject of the MHRA. Uh, this organisation, for anybody who does not yet know, um, sits as the body regulating medicines and medical devices in UK. Uh, but of course, it, it also says it is there to protect people, to uh, look after the safety of the UK public in relation to substandard pharmaceutical products and vaccines. Do they live up to their name? No. 100% no. I don't see anything within the MHRA that suggests that they're a safety regulator for a start. In fact, they're no longer a regulator. They're an enabler now. Um, and in my opinion, the MHRA are corrupt and are committing fraud. And everybody within the MHRA, currently working within the MHRA, should be removed from office immediately. But that's my opinion. Well, we, we just have to add to that, of course, there may be people inside the MHRA who are simply not aware of what's, what's happening in some circumstances. Yeah. But it's difficult to say that because, of course, they're sitting into these in these board meetings where much of this stuff is being debated. This is just a little clip of a lady you've mentioned before, Raj Long, and we just wanted to put this clip on screen because she does mention safety. And what we're doing here is pinning this word safety onto the MHRA so they can never run away from their obligation. Let's just uh, see this little clip. The, the first one is on the public risk perception. Um, I think a good understanding for the public on how the agency makes its, its decision on risk-benefit, I think, is really important. Because risk-benefit, as we know, is a ratio. That ratio could be different to a committee of experts looking at it and figuring out the ratio in which way it would favor versus how an individual patient or a group of patients or a sub-cohort who are with a specific condition would think. So if they can understand the former, it will help them then identify to you what level they'd be going to. And I think it's a lack of understanding the former sometimes that goes, because in many ways, I think the safety decisions that the agency make comes out of recommendations from safety committees, I, I, I understand, right? In, in, in terms of it working with the agency. So understanding that process, I think is huge. Uh, and I know with the FDA, sometimes they open it to the public, people from the public can, yes. so they hear the debate and they hear how it's been done. So. Something to consider, uh, I think, Alison, uh, as we move forward. The second comment was on the yellow card biobank. I totally agree with Graham. I, it's a super exciting project, and it's so nice to see a regulatory agency going down this path of linking genetics with safety uh, 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 predictability. You know, in terms of, I think it's going to be amazing. One thing I do want to say is, and I don't know whether it's a, it's a, it's a potential for another opportunity, is um, have you considered now, is this a right point? to actually look further afield in the UK, because there are many biobanks out there doing similar work, not as a sub-component sub of an agency, but biobanks dedicated to this. So at the European level, you have the European biobank. 
then you have specific like BBRI in 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 in, um, in, the, in Europe again feels deals only with neurodegeneration in terms of so there's a, quite a few resources out there and I just wonder uh, whether we should step back look and see which ones could help you and actually do a link so it's part of establishing that global international outreach as well because it's good then I think from a comms piece to even say as an agency you're doing this mm. I think it's a really you know a, a very how can I say proactive futuristic approach for a regulatory agency to be looking at this and your resources could be much wider and you can team up and connect dots, you know, with those other agencies that are out there focusing. They're not specifically focusing on safety, I think, but I think you can learn a lot from them in terms of processes and procedures and how they actually use it. So just a thought there. Yeah. Yeah. Alison, just final point? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that I don't believe, um, I'm corrected, that there's any... Um, biobank that's specifically focused on an adverse drug reaction. So the beauty of our yellow card scheme is that we can identify individuals through our yellow card scheme who have experienced an adverse drug reaction whilst on a particular... So apologies for the slightly distorted sounds there. The initial bit of the clip that we wanted is that lady starts talking about safety. And at one point she says... And well, I, I think we get safety information from other committees, I think. So we have the body, which is there in position in UK to protect the UK public from pharmaceutical and vaccine adverse reactions. And we know because we're watching their own people speak that they're not too sure what the safety regulation or the safety component of their own organization is. I, I find. I find this angle unbelievable. It, it is unbelievable. And, you know, for people watching, that is actually the April board meeting, which is available on YouTube. And that lady that you were just watching is Raj Long. Raj Long is uh, from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And she's on the MHRA board and she's also on the UK HSA board. And what really concerns me is that she's rolling out the whole dementia program in the UK, but she is not a doctor. She's not an expert. She's a nobody. And again, you know what we were saying before with people doing jobs where they have no experience and pretty, pretty much no qualifications and clearly safety. She knows the committees that are involved with patient safety, and that's Mercy's committee. If you see the board meetings, you'll see who Mercy just Searingham is. And she runs the patient safety committee. But clearly, one director doesn't know what the other directors are doing. So the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. And I don't call that safe. No. And we'll add that we've recently been talking to more people who've suffered vaccine adverse reactions, which has greatly impaired their lives yeah. and the common story from these individuals is that they are getting no uh, help from the MHRA at all. None. They cannot detect that the MHRA is at all interested in any reports of people suffering vaccine damage. They're not. They're actually not. They're really not interested in contacting anybody that submitted a yellow card. Yeah. Okay, well, you've got a headline here, Debbie. Let's go back to the past for a glimpse into the future. What are you seeing here? Well, what I'm seeing is prior to Dame now, June Rain, being appointed as head of the MHRA, 
Uh, Dr. Ian Hudson was the MHRA's CEO. Um, and I just thought I'd go back and look a little bit at Dr. Hudson. So here we can see that um, he's a dad. Um, he hasn't looked back. He's had a, a great career. He describes the MHRA and executive agency of the Department of Health as a very exciting place to be, adding that the 1,200 people who work here include many experts nationally, internationally in their fields, well respected for their contributions. We've got medics, pharmacists, toxicologists, scientists, etc., all part of a very highly motivated workforce. The variety of people I work with has actually been the biggest excitement for me in working with the agency. So no mention of anybody as a safety or a no. risk an, uh, uh, analyst there. No. Um, but he's calm and gentle, mm. calm and gentle demeanor, implacable bedside manner. I'm sure I'd like him by my bedside, but there we go. And the agency's primary function is, as the name suggests, the regulation of medicines, everything from the medication used to treat and prevent illnesses, including non-medicinal prophylactics such as condoms, to other healthcare products, including mobility scooters, wheelchairs, and defibrillators. Uh, sorry. Um, so he's he's very confident that he's got a really super organisation there. Uh, where is he now? Oh, well, now that's a very good question. He stepped down and da-da! Where do we find he's gone? To the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, he was a practicing pediatrician before joining, this is his history, Smith Klein Beecham in 1989 to work in research and development. In 2001, he joined the UK Government Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Service, MHRA, where he served as the Director of Licensing and then CEO Ian was the UK delegate to the Scientific Committee of the European Medicines Agency Management Board. And it goes on to say he was at the University of London. Um, and now he's at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So, That's really interesting, isn't it? Considering the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are investing a lot of money into the MHRA. It's, it's revolving door spinning yeah. so fast it's difficult oh, yeah. to see, I think. Well, people can draw their own conclusions from that, but the key point we're making is that to date, uh, the MHRA has not delivered any um, information uh, about vaccine safety, which shows that the vaccines are safe, or we could come in at a different angle. There's no evidence from the MHRA to show that their own recorded vaccine adverse reactions in the yellow card system do not relate to vaccines themselves. So our challenge remains to the MHRA, what quantitative risk assessment have they carried out into vaccines? Well, take us on to this one, because I know that you see this as being something major, Medicrime. I do. Uh, Medicrime is something that's not often spoken about or not a lot of people hear about it. Medicrime is short for medicine crime, medical crimes. And I've done a little bit of work on this. So the Council of um, Europe Convention on the Counterfeiting of Medical Products and Similar Crimes involves the threats to public health. And this is, this is what it's all about, the threats to public health. So what is Medicrime? 
So when you start to look into it and you see that it says the manufacturing of falsified medical products, supplying, offering to supply and trafficking in falsified medical products, the falsification of documents and the unauthorized manufacturing or supplying of medicinal products. You think, ah, well, are the MHRA, how are the MHRA looking into this? And of course, the MHRA have their very own operation currently going on called Operation Pangaea, which means that the MHRA have their own criminal enforcement agency. And this criminal enforcement agency, you know, has an awful lot of power. I mean, really a lot of power. And as we'll come on to see, I think maybe the next slide, are we coming on to? Oh yes, this is the treaty. Um, just highlighting really for, for people so that they can go and you can go and have a look yourself at Medicrime and, and the Council of Europe's Convention on the Counterfeiting of Medical Products. Right. These are the documents. Debbie, am I right in saying that the reason, one of the reasons that you're flagging this up is that you're able to see the sheer power of the MHRA, the growing power of the MHRA, which sees itself as a global, a global regulator. Uh, but also we, we've got this mix of health and security, security. coming together. So yep. this is not just an organisation that can speak and nothing happens. They can't do anything with vaccine safety. But when it comes to cracking down on people they believe have broken the rules, they're getting yep. tougher and tougher. And this is surveillance. And as you can see, the treaty was opened, uh, ironically, in Moscow. So, you know, Medicrime is big business. But what we need to be looking at is what is the MHRA looking at with regards to Medicrime? And what is happening in this country with regards to Medicrime and who are they targeting? OK, well, hopefully we have got this bit, this bit of uh, video clip, uh, which is a gentleman called Andy Morling talking at the MHRA. And he's their enforcer. Is that a reasonable description? Yes, he's he's the chief enforcement officer. Um, Andy Morling, and uh, he was invited to the most recent board meeting, of which this is exclusive video. It's not up online yet, so it's only available to us. And uh, they asked Andy Morling to present at the last board meeting on the, the particular situation at the moment with Medicrime. And uh, I think you'll hear a little bit of what he's about to say to June Rain and Stephen Lightfoot at the board. And I think you've hit on a, a key point of the paper. We are strengthening our online capabilities full stop because I think we, we recognise we've fallen behind a little bit. We haven't really developed in keeping with the way that the online uh, trade has developed. So, so the first point I'd make is we are investing more in that. Um, the the 30,000 websites you mentioned, as it happened in that particular example, and it's probably a good example, they were all identified by us, but us working in partnership with both uh, a private sector entity um, and another government agency with a very heavy footprint in this um, in this space. So this was a really good, it, it was a proof of concept, in fact. We were looking to see whether we could industrialize the identification of these websites and also industrialize the uh, the taking down of these websites. And so, so that that is the model moving forward. We won't be able to do this on our own. That's another one of the essential truths I've learned in my career. There's there's no way you can do this alone. Um, so we are looking to continue that partnership, strengthen that partnership, and get in put in place um, technical mechanisms, technical solutions that will place a bit of a ring of steel around the UK in terms of access to these websites. We think that's a far better way of doing it than just playing whack-a-mole 
and knocking down a website one day only for it to reappear the following day with a new name. It, it served a purpose, taking down his website, because we're disrupting the business model, making it difficult for people, but it isn't the long-term solution. The long-term solution is to work with the tech industry, with the internet industry, both in terms of infrastructure and service providers in the UK, to try and find a way of building a ring of steel so these sites aren't accessible to UK consumers. That, to me, is the, the money shot, if you like. That's, that's the point at which we'll have achieved something quite significant in the online space when we can prevent people getting access to them in the first place. It doesn't matter that they're still up in Moldova or it happens to be. The fact is they're not accessible to people in the UK, and that's our ambition. We clearly can't do that on our own. Um, so, yes, we are, we are looking to strengthen those partnerships with industry, um, with the tech industry, strengthen the partnerships with the um, internet service providers particularly, uh, and other government agencies that are perhaps bigger hitters in the space than we are. So, um, doesn't matter about Moldova. Apparently, the health and safety of people in Moldova, that's not an issue. Um, but they are going to look after the people in UK and they're going to make sure that we do not have access to any other sites. Uh, we are not allowed to make any judgments about medication and the quality of that medication. It's all going to be done for us by the MHRA. Yes. I, I see this as a complete, Debbie, as a complete close down of yeah. any anything other than big pharma medication. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I actually think, and, and I have actually transcribed this section of the board meeting, and I know that we're going to be putting the board meeting up. This is exclusive footage. You won't find it anywhere else. But um, Andy Morling, um, his experiences, um, HM Revenue and Customs, a serious fraud office, a serious organised crime agency in the National Crime Agency in the Food Crime Unit. Um, he's meant to be a very experienced gentleman um, with regards to intelligence. But what he's saying is basically, and I think we all need to have our ears open uh, for this, is that he wants to put a physical, and later on in the board he does say physical, he wants to put a physical and a virtual a steel ring around the UK so that we are not able to get any other medications that have been approved and regulated by the MHRA. Now, this means that it will almost operate like China, where you cannot get anything in or out of the country if you want something. And we've got literally thousands of women at the moment buying HRT online, um, maybe from what they call illegal websites. Uh, June Rain is very concerned that medicines haven't been included in the online harms bill. And so now exploring that possibility, they're now even talking about bringing the strengthening the regulation. So I think we need to be looking at the MHRA very, very, um, very closely on this because I've got a horrible feeling that for some for some medications and for some alternative medications that maybe some of us are used to ordering online, we're not going to be able to do that anymore, Brian. Uh, we're not. And... Um... Yeah, it's difficult to know what's saying that if the MHRA was doing a proper job in protecting the safety of the public in relation which to not. big pharmaceutical products, which they're not, because uh, we've had problems with uh, um, epilim, sodium valparate, for example. Thalidomide. Thalidomide was another one. Uh, we can clearly got a huge amount of damage following vaccines, but they don't want to talk about no. that. So substandard 
big pharma products are approved. Yep. Uh, meanwhile, other people are going to be shut out. So if you yep. come up with an alternative medicine, which on the ground is effective, they are going to they're going to stop it. Did, did we manage to show Mr. Morling on screen there? We'll oh, just, no, let's see Mr. Morling. For people who want to go and have a look at him and uh, get a little bit more knowledge about his experience, uh, it's fairly easy to find online. But this is the man who's going to put a ring of steel, quote, uh, around UK to make sure the public can't access sites that he thinks they shouldn't be able to access. But it goes on because this is the global aspect, fourth Emirates International Conference. Yes. Um, you know, as I was looking up Mr. Morling, because I wanted to know um, exactly what he was, who he, who he was and what he did. And uh, this is really big business. So the fourth Emirates International Conference on falsified and substandard medical products took place in November last year. There's another one coming up for this year. And uh, I think we'll see in a minute that Andy Morling. Oh, yes, this was um, who was uh, chairing it, uh, Dr. Amin Hussein Al-Emiri, that they, they were hosting this event. Um, you can freeze the screen this and read that. This is UAE, isn't it? So yep. The problem of substandard and falsified medical products continues to increase globally as globalised manufacturing distribution systems grow, grow ever more complex. The existence of substandard falsified medical products is an unacceptable risk to public health in the UAE. Coordinated activities and a harmonised and holistic approach to tackle the issues related to falsification of medical products implemented through various in, in sorry, initiatives, actions are classified as security, legal, industrial, cybercrime, communications, medical, regulatory. Cooperation amongst all concerned stakeholders across the world is a must. And we invite all of you to cooperate and come together for the massive fight against substandard and falsified medical products. Well, this um, uh, brings Andrew Morling back on screen because you quite rightly identified him here taking part in one of the sessions chaired by Mr. Morris Adafalu and um, uh, he's uh, entitled, sorry Mr. Andrew Morling is entitled head of the Criminal Enforcement Group Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency and uh, this one is uh, he's chairing that he's session there. Chairing this himself uh, so he's not slow at coming forward and, uh, he's been made a doctor look. He's been promoted. Well, is he? No. <laughs> I think it must be a typo on but, behalf of uh, UAE, because as far as I'm aware, he doesn't have a PhD in anything, although they have promoted him to doctor. Though. OK, well, that's an interesting one. But you've highlighted some of the thing, uh, some of the jobs that he's previously had. He's been part of Majesty's Customs and Excise. Uh, he's been part of the Serious Fraud Office. He's been part of the UK National Crime Agency, where he led the agency's efforts to tackle serious child sex, sexual exploitation. And I say, interesting, those are um, agencies that, in my opinion, have consistently failed to do the job they were set up to do, particularly with uh, child sexual abuse um, but maybe I'm, I'm uh, he's using the model actually in the board meeting he says that the, the model that they're using is the model uh, for child sex abuse and terrorism and the model seems to work quite well but this is all you you'll be able to hear it him say it in the board meeting okay all right well this is a little bit more of those meetings um, a whole system approach you can freeze the screen and 
have a look at this yourself because it's uh, a little bit um, uh, the, the text is a little bit small now I'm not sure whether we've, we do have another video of him speaking on food uh, crime um, I'd hope to be able to get this in but we might not have that okay apologies for that if you go online and just do a simple search uh, for YouTube Andy Mauling food crime you'll come up with a little clip where he's talking about his good efforts um, uh, to protect us from substandard food but if we just um, jump on to this uh, particularly uh, poignant uh, report here this is taking us back to the mail and uh, the headline is multi-millionaire who sold bogus miracle drug as a cure for cancer and HIV faces the seizure of his fleet of private jets and um, this is of course David Noakes and you've picked up that in this particular article uh, we've got um, Andy Morling quoting quoted sorry saying our investigation team has worked relentlessly to bring David Noakes and his associates to justice and today's decision to deny him the proceeds of his criminality is welcome um, he says this during the article patient safety is our highest priority um, it's almost unbelievable as you follow this trail through they talk patient safety but they do nothing to ensure patient safety but uh, what they also did of course was uh, prosecuted David Noakes without being interested in any beneficial effects from his treatments that was simply sidelined absolutely and as of course you can see there it says we will continue to track track you see tracking surveillance prosecuting it's all about surveillance um, and remove assets from criminals who exploit public health for their own gain does that mean we can remove assets from the MHRA I would like to think so in due, due course that yeah. we will see what can be done on that but while the MHRA was hounding David Noakes um, over the subject of GC math uh, you've identified that um, GC math seems to be coming back into the frame of it MHRA this this was just part of a freedom of information um, asking for uh, uh, just excuse, evidence excuse really just to show that this slide really is is just to show that there had been an inquiry into GC math and that the MHRA were very concerned about David Noakes and his use of GC math and then if we move forward to today um, we can see that GC math is being used for or being trialed for other reasons I don't know if we've got the slide on that okay one. we'll come to that just the, okay. the, the slide on screen at the moment uh, there was one sentence which popped out of me it's the start at the top of the screen yes. it says that the MHRA holds no clinical data on the use of GC math and this is my point that with um, David Noakes the MHRA was simply not interested if he was having any success doing what he was doing so he was prosecuted and the freedom of information has drawn this information out that they casually say we don't have any information they seem to be following a pattern though don't they because the MHRA as far as I'm aware don't hold any clinical or safety data on the use of COVID-19 vaccines right so this is where we start to see that in the background uh, to, with great surprise, GC math is suddenly starting to be mentioned. 
Yes. What's happening here? I mean, here we have a clinical trial. Uh, it's going on in Italy uh, for the efficacy and safety of oral immunotherapy with GC-MAF in hospitalized patients with COVID-19 pneumonia. And from the, 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 the trial so far, it seems to be successful. As you can see there in the brief summary, these observations suggest that oral immunotherapy with colostrum MAF is potentially an effective and well-tolerated treatment for COVID-19 pneumonia. In addition, gastrointestinal involvement is well known in coronavirus infections of animals and humans. So this is great news. Um, this is absolutely great news. And it's very, very sad that the MHRA seem to base all of their cases when they have no evidence and including the COVID-19 vaccines with no safety data. It's that simple. Could, we have none. Could it be that they were desperate to stop David Noakes because they yes. knew that the big pharmaceutical companies wanted to use GCMAF in the future. Is that a possibility? In my opinion, yes. But of course, GCMAF is a lot cheaper, a lot safer than any of these biotoxic chemicals that were coming down the line. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the same with cancer treatments, um, with all the chemotherapy and radiotherapy. These, these therapies cost thousands and thousands of pounds. GCMAF is much more affordable and much more effective. So what do the pharmaceutical companies want to do? They want us to spend as much money as possible. And that's why they don't want to see successful treatments like GCMAF being used or trialed. Yeah. Okay, well, you've picked up on, on this subject of good manufacturing, and this is part of your own dialogue. T tell us about this. So as everybody knows, I'm always very keen to attend all the webinars and forums and conferences that the MHRA and the Cabinet Office Behavioural Science, which I know that we'll come on to on another news. Um, and I was very interested in seeing that the MHRA manufacturing and distribution event was going to be um, held. So I applied for tickets. And like everything else with the MHRA, I received a, an email back to say, Dear Debbie, Nothing has been confirmed as yet for the event, but please see the message below from the MHRA. And the message was, we have postponed the MHRA Good Manufacturing and Distribution Practice Conference until later in 2022 to 2023. So, so I was really disappointed. They're struggling a bit. That was my highlight of the year there, Brian. Well, you, you did it and they'll come back to you. Now, I've got an eye on the clock because we're just running over the hour uh, a little bit, but we'll we'll go through the remaining slides we've got as quickly as we can. You wanted just to mention this ultra sleek ambulance here. Um, yeah. Electric powered. So yep. some interesting questions about that. Um, of course, there's been a lot of talk on UK column about problems with electric vehicles. Yeah. But here's the ambulance. What's your comment on this thing? Well, I had to bring this in because I know that we've been looking at ambulances on UK column and this is the latest uh, in their new fleet. Now, normally it would cost an ambulance £150,000. These ones are £300,000. They have two batteries. They're super quick. They can go much quicker than any other ambulance. So you'll be pleased to know they won't run out of charge. Don't panic. They've got two batteries. But what is concerning to me is that these ambulances come complete with scanners, x-ray facilities. So it means basically they're bringing the hospital to your door. And in the second picture there, um, you can see the inside of the ambulance. And 
They mentioned that it has a sky roof. Uh, I can't quite read it because it's a little bit small, but a sky roof for patients with psychosis, which, I mean, we know that we've got mental health vehicles um, also coming down the line. But these ambulances, is this to say now that hospitals are no-go zones? So if you've got uh, a broken an ankle or a broken arm, they'll be able to x-ray you at home so you don't need to go anywhere near a hospital. So to me, this is shutting out hospitals. And who is going to be operating this x-ray equipment that's going to be careering around the streets like ice cream vans? I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But you've been right uh, to date on everything you've said about the general shutdown of the NHS, uh, even to the point of saying that people are not going to go to a hospital for anything apart no. from a set period, you're timed in, you're timed out, yep. and the rest of the treatment will be at home. Um, here is uh, the future though, don't worry, because we're gonna be using drones in order to deliver your chemotherapy drugs. Uh, this is pretty- Worrying. Worrying, okay. And uh, here we've got um, cancer vaccines now being promoted. Really worrying. And again, this is something that we've predicted, you know, that what they're going to do is they're going to look at the genomic sequencing of people and they're going to say, if you've got someone in your family who, or a, a member of your uh, a family with breast cancer or with dementia or with another disease, all of a sudden you'll be offered a vaccine so that you don't have to go through the same thing. So cancer vaccines are very worrying, especially when we've got a huge buildup of cancer patients at the moment waiting to be seen. Okay. And um, COVID? Oh, COVID. What can I say? Here we've got the government throwing away 40 million expired COVID tests. Right. And we know that COVID is on the rise. We're being sick. We're seeing mask mandates start to pop up. Hospitals are using masks. So let's look at this slide. Government set to throw away 40 million expired COVID tests as rates surge. So if we skip to the next slide. This is a contract to supply PCR tests. So we're going to throw a load away because obviously they've expired. And we've now put out a bid, a contract for more PCR tests. And this contract goes up to 2024. So, I mean, Brian, what is going on? Well, people are making money, Debbie. If I was a mask manufacturer, I'd have great fun stamping on yeah. the box. It expires in three weeks time because then the government's going to come back to you to buy another load of the yeah. same stuff. I think what we're looking at is a racket. But uh, let's finish very quickly on the subject of behaviour change. And once again, you, you're at the forefront, Debbie, of, of seeing what's going on. And this is the Government Communications Service had a briefing on behavioural change. This was fascinating. This was the Cabinet Office, behavioural science, and um, a, number of, a, a number of us turned up to it yesterday. And I've just taken a couple of screenshots just to show you what went on there yesterday, but we have got some exclusive footage of it as well, which we'll be showing at a later date. But this was a cabinet office briefing on what was, I'm not really quite sure who they were delivering this webinar to or what the point of it was. But as I've listened to it again, I think they were directing it at local authorities and looking at how to help people with the cost of living, how to help people with misinformation, how to help people make good choices with regards to the green agenda. So this particular um, 
this particular conference, I, I took a number of screenshots. And the first screenshot that you're going to see is um, the goals and the risks. Of the, sorry, this was held by um, Eleanor we, Prince. We've got it back on screen. You've got so it back on screen. goal is people spend the financial support they receive from government in the way that is best for them. You don't know how to spend your money at the moment. No, but that's from yeah. government. Yes, exactly. So they're saying at the moment, you don't know no. how to do it. We're going to teach you yes. how to spend your money in the way that we think is best. I'm deliberately manipulating the words a bit here. And the risk, people spend money in ways that they wouldn't have chosen to if they had more mental energy available to process important information and make decisions with 100% of their headspace. So our heads are full of fear, because that's what the government pushes yep. out in its own uh, applied behavioral change uh, program. We're pumped full of propaganda and, and fear via the mainstream yep. media. And then when we haven't got the headspace, the government's going to tell us what we yes. should be thinking. Um, so these were some of the detailed things they said. Yeah, and you can freeze the screen and have a look. But I mean, they're treating us like two-year-olds. Absolute two-year-olds. Um, and as you go, you can just flip through the, the slides, Brian, Word. and people can freeze the screens. But, you know, and this is for people that have got a little bit of money. This is what they said. The people that are in a position to be able to make more choices, how can we help them? Shall we help them with a boiler upgrade? Shall we tell them about energy efficiency? Can we signpost them to an electric car? What can we do? How can we give people with more money bigger ticket items? Right. So trust the government. Yep. We're, we're going to reframe you so that you know what questions to ask so that you spend our, our the yes. government's money better. Yeah, remarkable. Now, these are a couple of the screenshots and uh, you'd participated in this and several people did ask the very nice young ladies, we're going to say, yes, who were running were. it. So they did their best, but they clearly didn't know a lot about what they were really part of. So these were some of the questions which came, that came in. Can misinformation be weeded out by accurate evidence-based information in a more open discussion environment? Somebody, I think, was uh, stirring a little bit there. What are your views on the ethics of using psychological techniques to change behaviours of people without their consent or knowledge? And is behavioural science being used for malevolent intent? Have we forgotten thalidomide? Why is there not even a debate on this? The lack of transparency causes more to be fearful. If there are no concerns, why not a public discussion? Now, that says me. Is that you? That's me. That was me. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've just taken just a very small selection. There were lots of comments from lots of different people about uh, the dark side of behavioural science. And I, and I really felt for those the, the two the two ladies that were doing the presentation, one of which is a, has a PhD in behavioral science at University College London. Um, but I felt really sorry for them because clearly they weren't expecting to be challenged. And um, there were more questions about the vaccines and about pregnancy and about the side effects. And they were put in a very uncomfortable position. But I'm sure after the conference, I'm sure after it, they would have had question marks going around in their head, like what just happened there? You know, because they were all these in... questions, they were put in a very awkward position. Right. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Debbie, the clock says we must end there. Thank you very much for joining me. And a big thank you to all our viewers and listeners. Uh, please share this information. That's why we do it. 
And uh, thank you to everybody who's donating and financially supporting the UK column. We can't, we could only do that. We can only do this with your financial support. And our intention is to try and grow and expand. So if you can help us to fund that, that will be excellent. And I'd also like to say that uh, watch out for the next couple of days when there's going to be a burst of very interesting interviews uh, going up on the UK column, one of which is um, uh, with the producer and uh, sorry, the director and co-producer of the documentary and the vaccine adverse reactions. Uh, that was entitled A Letter to My MP. We had a very interesting discussion with that gentleman, James Wells, and also Dr. Christian Buckland, who was the psychologist involved. Uh, you've also done an interview with people who've been harmed by vaccines. Yes. And that's been to talk to the uh, UK CV family, as they're called. Yeah. Um, very, very emotional discussion. And uh, of course, you're also enabling us to put up the full June uh, MHRA board meeting, yes. which is currently not available to anybody else. And this is because we've taken the opportunity or you have of recording it. Yeah. So watch the UK column website. That material will be up over the next couple of days and we'd encourage everybody to watch it and share. That's it for today. We will be back at the same time tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.